The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. This episode is another adventure into our oral history collection here at the Museum of Flight. Astronaut Wendy Lawrence is a veteran both of the United States Navy and of four NASA Space Shuttle missions. This oral history was conducted by Museum of Flight volunteer Bruce Florsheim, whose voice you'll hear a few times during the interview. And in it, Wendy talks about her early inspiration and how she mapped out her future into space as a teenager, what it was like to work with Russian cosmonauts in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, and the perspective astronauts get while they're out there among the stars. My story is not gonna be unique when you consider my age. When you talk to NASA engineers and scientists, and especially astronauts who are around my age, for us it was all about the Apollo program. We weren't quite old enough to remember Mercury and even Gemini, but the early parts of the Apollo program caught our attention, but it was really a, the Apollo 11 mission. So I have a, a very fond spot in my heart for the entire Apollo 11 crew. I can't tell you what it was about watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin go out for the first time and take those incredibly historic steps on the surface of the moon, but again, like a lot of astronauts around my age, we were hooked, eyes riveted on the screen, and that's when the dream began. All right, well, what did you start doing to make that dream come true? Where did you go to school? What did you study? Well, as a 10-year-old, nothing, <laughs> you know, because you really, don't think about what's required at that age. But uh, I had a little bit of a benefit, I guess you could say, because my dad being a naval aviator, also a Navy test pilot, somebody who had flown with Alan Shepard in his first squadron, and then was a test pilot with Alan Shepard and John Glenn. Uh, he was involved in the selection process for the first group of astronauts. Didn't make it due to a small medical problem, but I got to benefit from his 2020 uh, hindsight, I guess you could say. His advice to me was actually pretty simple, profound, but really quite basic. He said, why don't you look at what the first several groups of astronauts did before they got selected by NASA, try and follow in their footsteps. Well, they'd all gone to college. Many of them had studied engineering. Many had been in the military and been pilots, and so my senior year of high school was the first year that women were accepted at the service academies, and so, uh, again, getting it on both sides of the family. And my mother's father graduated from there in 1930, Navy pilot. My dad was a 1951 grad. Uh, I decided to put my application in, and so I uh, entered the academy in the summer of 1977. On that first flight, what was it like uh, looking out the window back at Earth? Well, that was kind of fun. Uh, another fun story. Uh, that mission, since we were doing astronomy, we had split the crew into two shifts. 
so we could operate the telescopes around the clock. So I happened to be on the shift that was going to launch and then immediately go to work and start a 12-hour shift. And I was the on-orbit pilot for that shift, and the commander and the pilot were on the opposite shift. So it was fun for me as a first-time flyer, uh, basically, to be in charge of the orbiter uh, during my shift. But we had a lot to do because we immediately had to go to work. So I remember we got up into space, and we were kind of wrapping up all our kind of post-ascent procedures, early on-orbit procedures. And the commander literally grabbed me and threw my face in the window and said, hey, you're in space, take a look. And, um, and then he kind of pulled me away and said, now go downstairs and get ready for your ship. But it's, you've seen pictures, you've done your Earth observation training, but nothing prepares you for that first view. And for me, at that point, it had been 25 years of pursuing the dream. So there's also that emotional component of realizing that you, you had finally done it. You'd finally made the dream come true and you were living it. How did going into space change you? I find it fascinating that when you ask astronauts and cosmonauts alike that question, independent of one another, we tend to have a very similar answer. It's just the way that we see the Earth, uh, particularly in the daylight part of the orbit where the incoming light from the sun just overwhelms any of the light from the stars. And so all you see is this deep, intensely deep black void of space that surrounds the planet. Now, obviously, on a flight to, on the space shuttle or in, even now on the space station, you're not up high enough to see all of the Earth, but up high enough that you can see the curvature of it. And you see that portion of Earth against this, again, deeply black void of space. And it just seems like this vast expanse wants to engulf the Earth and swallow it up. And it makes the Earth look small and fragile. And that's the word that we all use. It makes the Earth look fragile. It makes it look like it's not strong enough to hold off this kind of like Pac-Man void that wants to gobble it up. And I think it just drives home this um, increased sense of responsibility that we have to take care of the planet. We see the world in a way that other inhabitants of Earth have not had the privilege to see. We look at the land masses. We don't see obvious borders. We see the one place that we currently know how to live on. And it really, again, drives home this sense that it's small and it's fragile, and that we, as an fellow crew members of planet Earth, must work together to take care of it. We must figure out a way to work together. And again, for us, fewer than 600 people who've had this incredible privilege, I think we also come back with this sense of we have to focus on what we have in common. If we are going to work in together, we must focus on what we have in common. And that is the fact that we are all crew members on this spaceship Earth. All right. Now, your second space mission was on the shuttle Atlantis, going to the Russian Mirror space station. What was that mission like? Well, I had just spent 16 months in Russia. First uh, six months were as director of operations there, the job we called the DOR. So I kind of jokingly say my job was the care and feeding of the NASA astronauts who were training in Star City at the time. 
as part of the Shuttle Mir program, we were having initially five NASA astronauts do long-duration missions on Mir. Uh, ultimately, it was a total of seven. So once I finished my stint as DOR, then I started training as a um, backup crew member for one of those missions. So it was fun to actually have a chance to finally see Mir with my own eyes after having spent many, many months over there training in the mock-ups. And what was it like working with the Russians? Interesting, <laughs> especially since I was still on active duty in the Navy and I basically was from the Cold War era. And we had cosmonauts and astronauts who had literally um, stood alert against one another. Uh, station, uh, Rick Searfoss, I think it was, was stationed over in Germany. And he ended up being on orbit, on board Mir, with a Russian uh, cosmonaut, Air Force pilot, who had stood alert against him in one of the bases in the middle part of the Russian country. And so now, this was truly an instance of we were beating our swords into plowshares. What was fascinating to me was the fact that even though we had the military folks had this background of having been trained to go to war against one another, we chose to focus on what we had in common, which was we're space flyers. We are the individuals who get the opportunity to go to space. And so that was our common bond. We spoke a common language because of that. We understood one another. We understood the rigors of our training in order to go up into space and accomplish our missions. And so we became the glue that held the Shuttle Mir program together. It was much more challenging for some of the managers in the program to build those bonds of trust. And so the cosmonauts and the astronauts were the ones that kind of led by example and, and paved that path. What advice do you have for those who are following in your footsteps and dream of becoming an astronaut? to walk down the path. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be long. It's going to be challenging. And there are going to be a lot of times where you don't think you can do it. But you have to be able to persist. Because making your dream come true is a process. And it, as I said before, it can be a very long process. So you have to develop this mindset that it's one step at a time. And you have to be constantly thinking about what should the next several sets of uh, steps be. And I go back to the, I tell kids, this is what my dad said to me. Go do that. Go look at the people who are already doing what you want to do and see how they got there. And that's the nice thing about this day and age is you can go to the internet and you can research their bios. You can learn a lot about them. You can. <laughs> learned much more than I was able to do back in the days of having to go to the library and hope that somebody had already written a biography about a person. Um, but do that research. And then work hard to develop those skills, to be the best that you can be, and put yourself in a position where you're ready to take advantage of the opportunities that come your way. Because there will be those incredible opportunities. I mean, the day the Navy called me up and said, hey, we're starting this new program at MIT in Woods Hole in Ocean Sciences, and we see you studied ocean engineering at the Naval Academy. Would you like to go to MIT to get your master's degree? Because if you get accepted, we'll pay for your master's program. And again, as somebody who was trying to become an astronaut, 
with a background as a helicopter pilot, I knew that master's education would be critically important for me. And so how could you turn down an opportunity like that? You know, I had to put myself in a position where I could get accepted by MIT, which meant studying for the GRE exam and studying very hard for that. But I did it, and I got accepted, and I got my master's from there. I was able to write a thesis that was published in an academic journal, which uh, after I got to NASA, I got feedback from some of the non-military astronauts who said that was one thing that really stood out on their application, was that as a military officer, you had been published in a peer-reviewed academic journal. So you got to be, that's what I tell the kids. When those opportunities come, you need to be in a position to take advantage of them. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Special thanks to those listeners who've been able to support the podcast and the museum financially these past few months. Your gift truly makes this project and other amazing educational projects at the Museum of Flight possible. If you'd like to become a donor, you can find a link in the show notes, or you can head to museumofflight.org podcast and click the yellow donate button. If you'd like to walk in Wendy's footsteps on your next visit to the Museum of Flight, head over to the Simone Space Gallery, where you'll find our NASA Space Shuttle full fuselage trainer. You can still see the scuff marks left behind by astronauts, presumably her, <laughs> practicing for emergency evacuation on the side of the trainer today. And if you can't make it to the museum, we offer immersive expert-guided remote tours for small groups and, and large groups if you're an educational group using some pretty amazing digital technology. So we can bring a tour of the trainer to you online, wherever you are. I actually wrote one of the tours with the help of some of the awesome space geeks around the museum here. So you can learn about booking one of those remote tours in the show notes, which you can find at museumofflight.org podcast. If you want to hear more of Wendy's story, you can find her entire oral history as part of our digital archives. She speaks more in depth about how her education and military experience helped her become an astronaut, her training in the U.S. and Russia, more stories from her four missions, and about her life after NASA. And there will be, of course, a link in the show notes. And the oral history program at the Museum of Flight is made possible by the support of Michael and Mary Kay Hallman. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and share it out with folks who you think might enjoy it. You can leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>